Hello. Thank you for joining us. We're proud to welcome you to our special series, In Chains, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about the history and the current state of slavery and human trafficking. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today we're speaking with Professor Vasco Becker-Weinberg. He's a professor at Nova School of Law in Lisbon, Portugal, and the author of Time to Get Serious About Combating Forced Labor and Human Trafficking in Fisheries and Legal and Gender Implications of Human Trafficking. Professor Becker-Weinberg, thank you so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for your kind invitation. So, First of all, tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, on this article here. Give us a little background about yourself. Uh, well, the, um, I really came across this topic some years ago, um, and but it was sort of a chance uh, how it happened. And I continued doing some research because I was really intrigued that there wasn't so much uh, research on the intersection between human trafficking and forced labor and the, the maritime, in the maritime domain, so to speak. And, but it was only when I was um, asked to do some uh, work for the International Labor Organization, its regional uh, uh, office in Southeast Asia, that I really understood the scale of this uh, problem that we are facing um, and it should affect all of us. It should affect all of, man, uh, of humankind. And during that work uh, in Southeast Asia, I was asked to do a to elaborate a report, to draft a report that focused on three jurisdictions: the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, and Thailand. And it, it involved as well doing two field uh, missions uh, to uh, Jakarta and to Manila. And that con- the contact I had there with fishers organizations uh, and with employers organizations, but also government officials, other authorities and stakeholders really um, conveyed to me the human dimension of this issue, not so much as a theoretical issue that we have to deal with, but uh, in, in essence, uh, the, the human nature of this, of this problem. And um, it's, it, it was really difficult from a, a personal point of view because it's really to, to say it clearly, a punch in the stomach when you realize the full scale and how complex this issue is and what is the human cost that it entails, um, but also how difficult it is with the existing legal instruments to actually tackle this without some, um, some determination that is somehow wanting. Therefore, I had this provocative title, Time to Get Serious About It, uh, in, my, in the article that you mentioned. Because really, I, I fully believe that we should really engage as uh, 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 not only at the state level, but also at every other level, including consumer responsibility that can, can have a, a, a profound change in the current status quo. So as you mentioned, this is not something theoretical. This is something that affects our everyday lives all over the world. Uh, when I was reading this, I thought of um, the Associated Press 
uh, investigation from 2016. Uh, that investigation into the fishing industry in Southeast Asia freed 2,000 slaves and traced the seafood they caught to supermarkets and pet food providers across the United States. Um, I'm wondering if you can give our listeners an idea of why corruption and slavery are so pervasive and why they thrive in this offshore industry? Uh, well, um, it is a combination of factors, really. Uh, but in essence, uh, this is a crime that pays off. It has a high degree of impunity, but also a high degree of reward. Undoubtedly, it is up there with uh, arms trafficking and other illicit activities in a global perspective dimension. And uh, as you mentioned, it's uh, it's, it's across uh, the whole fishing industry. It means that um, in the case of the EU, for example, there are measures in place to prevent the import of uh, fish uh, products that in its, in its core might have uh, or might have resorted to the use of forced labor. Uh, today, we refer to this phenomenon sort of, uh, as modern slavery. It has been sort of, uh, this name has been given to emphasize the dramatic uh, um, impact that this is having. Um, because the, the notion of slavery is a very old concept, but is also a legal concept. And, um, and unfortunately, in the, uh, when referring to forced labor and human trafficking, um, although we can uh, refer to it as a modern day slavery sort of uh, phenomena, uh, uh, it is not slavery because, and the reason why I'm saying this uh, uh, from the beginning is that if it were slavery, the tools under international law would be far more effective because slavery is a century old uh, practice that uh, has developed a significant amount of rules that are uh, enforceable um, and do not depend on international legal instruments. It is part of what we consider custom international law. So this would essentially mean that a state, any state, could stop a vessel that is engaged in the transport of slaves, because this is a rule that we have in international law. However, this is not the situation when we're dealing with forced labor or human trafficking and fisheries at sea. But to answer the question of why corruption and slavery thrive in this uh, industry and in, in fisheries, because the connection between forced labor and human trafficking in fisheries, particularly in the case of illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing, is vile and highly profitable. As I mentioned, there's a huge reward in this activity and a high degree of impunity. And the, it, the simple fact is that it can be found all over the world. You mentioned Southeast Asia, but we know today that this practice, the resorting to forced labor and human trafficking in fisheries, exists all over the world. Furthermore, a fishing vessel can be a place of abuse more extreme than any other workplace uh, on shore. At sea, a fishing vessel is out of sight for long periods of time with little or no opportunity for fishers to escape. The working and living conditions on board are simply described as inhumane. During one of my uh, field trips to, uh, field missions to Southeast Asia, I interviewed fishers and I met a fisher who told me that he had been uh, taken from, uh, from uh, Indonesia um, and spent a year and a half at sea without seeing land. Uh, and his family actually presumed him dead. They organized a funeral for him. And he 
So he boarded in Indonesia and he was released in South Africa uh, by an NGO. So the dramatic scale of this, you can't really, it's, we can look at this as, as a global, uh, from a global perspective, but if we separate and we look at every individual story uh, of every human being that has been forced to work or has been, has been trafficked to work on a fishing vessel, uh, it is really, uh, it, it is overwhelming. Um, the combination between these different realities, forced labor, human trafficking, and IUF, benefits from a high degree of impunity and reward. This is the result of important governance gaps and the general lack of rule of law in the fishing industry, where corruption, bribery, and association with other criminal activities are frequent. This is true, by the way, because a fishing vessel can be a place where different legal activities coexist at the same time. You can, uh, well, I'm generalizing, of course, but a fishing vessel that resorts to forced labor, human trafficking, you will find victims of forced labor, victims of human trafficking. You most likely will find sexual abuse taking place on board the vessels, also drugs and arms smuggling and other illicit activities. So th this is a, a, a global problem that is so complex and has so many different layers and ramifications. Uh, and therefore, corruption uh, is just one of these elements that keeps it going. Uh, so therefore, when we tackle this, we can't be, uh, we can't remove the operational aspect of tackling illegal fishing from the legal aspect. We have to do it with a global and holistic approach in order to have an effective approach to stop this uh, from happening. Right. And I want to talk about what the best legal approach is. But before we get to that, wondering that if you can touch on um, this gendered aspect that you write about. You say that forced labor and fishing is gendered. You mentioned that many of the laborers are men. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. The, um, it is true. The, the, the most men, most uh, victims are men. And interesting, most men do not see themselves, or many of the victims do not, male victims do not see themselves as victims. Um, they do consider themselves uh, being ex exploited, but they, they do not see themselves as victims. They do not person personify that. Well, they, they, when they, they, they rather not see the, consider themselves as victims. It's sort of uh, very um, perverse psychological uh, effect. That happens in some victims. At least some of them, some of the victims I interviewed, uh, they are outraged because they have been exploited, but they don't see themselves as victims, as you would see, for example, in sexual abuse uh, involving women and girls. However, when looking at human trafficking (IUF), we can't solely focus on the maritime domain. We have to consider the many layers and interconnections. And I came across the uh, reference to this phenomenon called uh, fish for sex. It, it is observed in many different developing countries, but particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. It is an arrangement between female fish traders and fishermen, whereby women secure their supply of fish by making the payment or part of that payment in sexual services. Again, these women are not engaged in fishing, but they are in the fishing uh, uh, chain. Uh, of, uh, of, so they're dealing with the unloaded fish. And these fishers with whom they have these arrangements, then they themselves can also be victims of forced labor and human trafficking. Um, nonetheless, the overwhelming majority of those forced to work on board of fishing vessels are men. 
um, women and girls that are forced to work in the processing of the unloaded catch are really confined in close fishing communities. They're trapped in a cycle of sexual abuse. Uh, and in this sexual abuse, or what I mentioned as, uh, or what is referred to as fish for sex, they have little or no, or no escape. And this is particularly the, the, the concern because the, the problem when we look at this, and I know that you want to talk about the options uh, later, on, later on, but it's important to understand that at, uh, at sea, there are many international ramifications to the problem or possible solutions to this problem. But on land, it's very difficult because here we are dealing with the sovereignty of one state. So if that state uh, where these fishing communities are located doesn't do what it should be doing to stop this cycle of abuse, uh, it's very difficult for the international community as a whole to do something unless we really want to do something about it. Um, and the, the, I believe that consumer responsibility here could have a very strong role. So can you explain what these law of the sea provisions are and how they have failed to protect human rights? Um, the law of the sea does not specifically or expressly address human rights. It seems puzzling, to say the least, at least when, I'm, when I always begin by saying this to, to, to any audience, uh, because this is the nature of international law. International law is deeply fragmented, but it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be coherent. And here I believe that the solution might be found in the systemic integration of international law, meaning the idea that international law is uh, one unity and that different areas of international law could supplement uh, where gaps are found. And the law of the sea, although it does not specifically address or mention uh, human rights, doesn't mean that there is no place for human rights in the law of the sea. But this is all good, but there is, of course, a, a, a very relevant obstacle because the traditional response or what would be the traditional response to forced labor and human trafficking at sea is based on the principle of, slag, of, sorry, of flag state preemption. This essentially places the fate of victims first and foremost in the effective exercise of jurisdiction by the relevant flag state with all the intricacies and shortcomings that this implies. Uh, such shortcomings could be, for example, that that flag state is a flag of convenience or it belongs to an entity that does not have statehood, for example. So in, in one sentence, it could be phrased that a vessel uh, uh, where there is presence of forced labor or human trafficking is very much out of sight, out of mind. Uh, it's far from the reach of uh, any flag state and any arm to enforce the law of that flag state. Because we know that with so many uh, ships uh, um, out there transporting goods and, 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 other, uh, and, 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 and persons, it is very difficult for every flag state to control every ship at all times. So it is very difficult really to, um, to uh, exercise uh, jurisdiction. However, it doesn't mean that other states other than the flag state can't, can't do something. There are limited measures that coastal and port states can adopt. But even in these cases, there can be important enforcement gaps, precisely because of the multi-jurisdictional challenge posed by the law of the sea. For example, we could have 
a vessel in the territorial sea of a coastal state uh, and uh, where do you have presence of forced labor. But because it's a territorial sea, enforcement jurisdiction belongs to the coastal state. So even if the flag state would like to do something about it, it, it cannot engage in a law enforcement operation in the territorial sea of another state. And the reverse can occur, for example, in the exclusive economic zone. So, the, so here, the gaps have to be filled somehow. And I believe that you can fill them precisely with other international legal regimes, particularly if states would um, uh, ratify and uh, effectively implement the ILO International Labor Organization's instruments, namely the Working Fishing Convention and the Protocol to the Forced Labor Convention. So, yes, that leads me to my next question is, how would the forced labor protocol fill those gaps, especially when it comes to enforcement? Well, as I mentioned, the answer resides in the systemic integration integration of legal regimes, uh, uh, considering the unity of international law, essentially using other international legal regimes to solve gaps where they exist, in this case, in the law of the sea. Of these two main instruments, the Work and Fishing Convention, what is also referred to as Convention Number 188, and the Protocol of 2014 to the Forced Labor Convention of 1930, these two are essential if we're referring to fisheries. Of course, there are other international legal regimes uh, addressing, for example, the United Nations Convention on Transnational and Organized Crime, which also deals with issues of corruption and organized crime. but if we only focus on these, we will find a, a, that their effective implementation would substantially improve uh, combating and preventing uh, the presence of forced labor and human trafficking in fisheries. The forced labor protocol underlines the urgency of eliminating forced labor and compulsory labor in all of its forms and manifestations. It is really a call for states to make to undertake an obligation to make forced or compulsory labor punishable as a penal offense and to ensure that penalties imposed by law are really adequate and strictly enforced. What happens in some of the cases that I've had the opportunity to study and really research is that penalties are really not this, they have no dissuasive effect whatsoever. Uh, and it, 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 it if you have a crime that is that provides such a high degree of reward, if there's no other, uh, um, if there's nothing to balance this, then if you keep having penalties that are really not very severe, and if they're not even strictly enforced, then the, you will not stop uh, uh, these crimes from taking place. The protocol also recognizes the importance of international cooperation and national coordination with stakeholders such as employers and workers organizations. This seems very straightforward when written in a convention, but it is important to understand that we are dealing with um, an established uh, uh, principle in international law that subjects of international law are states or international organizations. There is a limited role for non-state actors to actually be part of the of of international communities, so to speak. However, in recent years, we are seeing a shift. We are seeing a more relevant role given by states to non-state actors, and this protocol emphasizes how relevant cooperation with non-state actors, such as employees and workers' organization, 
uh, in this case, to prevent eliminating forced labor is essential. Uh, however, the fundamental obligation that states must undertake is to criminalize forced labor and human trafficking and to implement effective measures to identify, release, protect, recover, and rehabilitate victims. What happens in most cases is that, for example, that fisher that was released in South Africa, that was rescued in South Africa, he was brought back to Indonesia, he reunited with his family, but he didn't see the people that, uh, that caused him so much pain and suffering being punished. The, the, the proceeds of his exploitation were not uh, uh, seized and he did not receive any uh, compensation. So the idea of, of rehabilitation has to be, has to, has, cannot only be on paper, it has to take, uh, it has to really uh, be implemented. And the same regarding access to remedies, the same regarding access to compensation and uh, prosecution and conviction of those that not only um, uh, commit these crimes, but benefit from them. And here there's a very important element of connection with other legal instruments that is essentially, or can be translated essentially into follow the money. Make sure that no place is safe to harbor assets of such a large scale criminal activity. Uh, I would also like to point out some other uh, key provisions in the forced labor protocol that are extremely uh, relevant in combating, not only to prosecute and impose penalties, uh, but also to address the protection of migrant workers. Because the, the way that you feed the chain of forced labor and human trafficking is mostly by, uh, also by, sorry, migrant smuggling. And migrant workers uh, face abusive and fraudulent practices during recruitment and the placement process. So this has to be combated at home, uh, not only in the state where they are being recruited, that is the state of origin, but also the state of transit and the state of uh, destination. So if we just stop here and think, I've already identified six different states. I've mentioned the flag state, I've mentioned the coastal state, and I've mentioned port states. But we also have to consider three other uh, kinds of states, the state of origin or nationality of that, uh, uh, of that victim, where it's transit through, and uh, uh, lastly, the, of, of destination. So this makes uh, for a very complex and challenging jurisdictional uh, uh, problem. Uh, Therefore, the issues of recruitment and placement uh, uh, must be integrated in the context of forced labor convention, sorry, forced labor protocol. And this comes together with the convention uh, uh, number 188 that I mentioned earlier. So, for example, how to prevent this in, uh, in order to combat uh, uh, fraudulent recruitment practices, we need also to, come to make sure that those recruiting are that states where these recruitment agents or agencies are working there, that these states undertake to, to conduct a thorough due diligence of these entities or agents, but also we need education and providing information against fraudulent practices to fishers so that they are not, um, they are not uh, misled. By the way, not every victim uh, found in forced labor uh, on board a fishing vessel actually started out as a fisher. There are many migrants that have been uh, brought in to Thailand and other countries that they had in their uh, initial idea that they were going to work 
in construction uh, in, in, in Tallinn, for example. Then eventually they, found they were taken and, uh, into the fishing industry subject as victims of human trafficking. They started off as migrant smugglers, as, as, uh, as migrants um, that were being smuggled, and then they ended up in, in, uh, as victims of human trafficking. So the, these obligations have to be um, uh, understood not only in the perspective of the, of the of the of the forced labor relationship between uh, origin, transit, and destination state, but also as encompassing flag, port, and coastal state, because uh, labor sending states, transit, and destination state, uh, they operate in their with their own set of obligations. In addition to those that flag, port, and coastal states uh, are also need to operate in, um, so. These kind of uh, different layers have to be studied, examined, and I mean studies not merely by conducting research and uh, academic or theoretical study, but looking on uh, in every state if there is legislation that is adequate to uh, prevent and combat this phenomena, but also that there is legislation that allows for effective uh, enforcement uh, uh, of the law. And this can be done through many different ways. I will just name one. For example, if many of these states would um, uh, uh, legislate to exercise extraterritorial jurisdiction, for example, like the US has regarding certain uh, uh, situations, probably this will make it more difficult for uh, criminals to continue recruiting in the poorest countries and then, uh, and it, and then conducting uh, illicit or uh, unsustainable fishing practices in also developing countries to feed a, a world uh, uh, um, trade of fish that is worth uh, uh, a huge amount of money because uh, with increasing demographic and decreasing number of, uh, of human beings, also the need to access protein is also increasing. But on the other side of this coin, we see that the number of fish stocks decreasing. So the value that is given to fish is increasing every day. So we need to do something. Uh, and again, therefore, I have this provocative title of time to get serious about combating the presence of forced labor and human trafficking in fisheries. And I want to ask one last question. When you say time to get serious, uh, what can consumers do? That's a question we've been asking on previous podcasts. Uh, how can consumers educate themselves and, and be part of not only this conversation, but movement to end human trafficking and slavery? Well, I would say that the first thing is to be aware of the root causes and factors that heighten the risks of forced labor. And this can be done through education and information sharing. Uh, there's one thing that we uh, uh, now have access to is information. Not all of it good information, but we can we can get good and solid information, particularly from reputable international organizations such as agencies within the United Nations, namely the, uh, the International Labour Organization, uh, UNIDC, Interpol, and others. Uh, that really can give you that uh, required information. As consumers, you can ask the right questions. Uh, look at the labels, where, where the products that you're buying in the supermarket come from. Uh, 
um, make sure that you you that you, you ask the the person that you're buying from what, uh, that they would make sure that they would only sell uh, products that guarantee that no forced labor or human trafficking was involved. Um, the, the I mentioned earlier the European Union. The European Union has this uh, very uh, strict approach. In my personal view, it could it, there's always room for 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 to, to be more efficient and to be perfected. But I believe that a similar system where you have uh, checks on imports to make sure that no goods coming from abroad um, uh, are, have on its basis uh, force or human labor, human trafficking, but also looking at your own uh, internal market. Uh, we have to remember that forced labor and human trafficking can be found in every part of, of the world, including our own countries. And no country, no country is uh, is uh, is exempt of having human trafficking. I would say, and I would dare, that there is no country in the world that does not have human trafficking or forced labor of some sort. So being aware is probably the, the strongest thing that we could do as, we, as consumers and then just making the right choices uh, as a consequence of that awareness. Professor Vasco Becker-Weinberg, he is a professor at Nova School of Law in Lisbon, Portugal. Professor Becker-Weinberg, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank you. My pleasure. You are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.